well, let's get uh, let's get going here. Um, Second uh, Samuel chapter fourteen is where we're going to be at. And we'll do a little bit of a review to get into this. This is a pretty interesting part of 2 Samuel, and it sets up quite a bit, some pretty serious events and some things that are going on. Uh, so uh, bring you up to speed on it, and then a lot of it will make a bit more sense. So, But uh, with that, let's, uh, let's ask God to bless our time together. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, without your help, our labor is useless. And without your light, our search is in vain. Invigorate our study of your holy word, that by due diligence and right discernment, we may establish ourselves and others in your holy faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so welcome back. Good to see everybody. Anybody have any pressing questions <laughs> from three weeks ago? <laughs> or any any questions or anything about where we're at? Uh, if not, if you don't remember it now, but if you think of it, you can ask it here in a little bit. All right, so here we go. Remember, this is all this is all focusing on the life of David and his kingdom, so his family and things like that. And so what we have, one of the most uh, significant events to have happened, if you remember, in 2 Samuel 13, a son named Amnon raped his sister, stepsister Tamar. And Amnon was a bad, he was bad, he was wicked. Well, since David has all these wives and all these concubines, this kind of is one of the results of this. So Amnon rapes Tamar, and then one of David's sons, Absalom, after two years of waiting for the opportunity, Absalom draws Amnon away from the house, and they're at a party. Absalom gets everybody drunk, all of his relatives, and then he murders Amnon for vengeance on his, for raping his sister. So Absalom, when he does this, this is bad news because Amnon sort of took the law into his own hands and he went and did this. So now the question is, what's going to happen to Absalom for taking the law into his own hands? What's going to be the punishment for Absalom? Because he goes, he, he makes himself judge, jury, and executioner, and this is not good. So Absalom, as chapter 13 ends, Absalom flees to Geshur. You see that at verse 34, the heading there. So Absalom kind of has to go into no man's land. He has to run away so that he is not put on trial, so that he's not killed. So Absalom, the son of the king, is a vig not, well vigilante, but what is it called when you're running from the law? A fugitive, thank you, that's the exact word. Absalom is kind of a fugitive, even though he's the king's son, and he runs away. So in 2 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to hear how Absalom returns to Jerusalem. He returns to the, the kingdom. This is going to be, this is an important part of this story because this is kind of like one of those things that happens that gives some serious repercussions later on down the line. 2 Samuel chapter 14 is pretty important. Absalom has fled and he's been gone for three years. Chapter 14, verse 1. 
Now, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, so Zeruiah is one of David's, his sister. So this is Joab, is one of David's nephews. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, which means David missed Absalom. He desired to have him nearby. Joab sent to Tekoa, a city, and brought from there a wise woman. And he said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, Well, what is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death, for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. So Joab here. Now Joab is kind of a, he's a sharp guy. He was pretty well versed in military tactics and he could command guys. Joab also was the commander who sent Uriah to the front lines. Joab is a smart dude. And Joab wants to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. We aren't really sure why. We can draw a lot of speculation to think, did Joab want to bring Absalom back because he wants to cause problems for David? Or is he really seriously trying to help David in bringing Absalom back? But Joab, and he finds a woman who's, who's wise, a woman who, who knows how to talk and, and how 
a woman who would be confident enough to go and fool the king. Okay, because what does she do? Joab says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the king and tell this parable about two sons and a husband. And that there was an accident, right? You understand the parable, right? There was an accident. One of the sons killed the other. And now punishment must be vetted out for the one son. But the woman is saying, please don't do that because then I will have nobody. Please have mercy. Please don't enforce the law. Now, Joab had this woman say this and play this whole thing out so that Absalom, who killed his brother Amnon, right? So they're trying to get Absalom back to Jerusalem. So they tell this little story to try and convince the king, hey, it's okay if we don't punish Absalom and let him come back. Does this sound familiar for David? Were there any other times someone came to David and used a parable to teach him? You remember what happened to David after his affair with Bathsheba, right? Who came and talked to him? Nope. Starts with an N. Nathan. Nathan, right? The prophet came and talked to him. And remember, he told him a story, right? You remember that? He told him the story about the sheep, the lambs, and the guy, the rich guy and the poor guy. And so it's very interesting now that it seems like, it just seems like David is... (laughs) the way to convince David of something is to speak to him in this sort of wise parable of sorts to get him to do some reflection and some consideration. So they tell him this story and it's kind of the same thing where David is convicted of his, his, you know, convinced or shown to guide his behavior from a parable that's told. And and he's kind of taken it, walked into it somewhat ignorant kind of innocent, and they come and, and David comes to a realization that he should do something. So the woman, she turns it on him, doesn't she? She says, oh, well, you've just convicted yourself, for why haven't you let Absalom come back? Why haven't you just forgiven Absalom? Right? She says, hey, we're all, we all must die, right? We're going to die eventually, but uh, can't you think of a way that that you know, God forgives the outcast. God gives ways for the outcast to be brought back into the kingdom. So why don't you do that for, for Absalom? David says, okay. Now, if this was a good idea or not, I don't know. I'm on the fence about this. Because Absalom was banished. He was gone. And that was a God-pleasing, you know, banish him out. He's gone. He's out. I don't know enough about the dynamics or the law here to say that now that that David has been convinced by this parable to let Absalom come back, that this is actually a good thing. I don't know. Or that David is not bringing the full law to come onto Absalom. I don't know. Any questions or clarifications on this? Pretty simple. It's kind of, it's pretty simple, but it's kind of like a soap opera, isn't it? When I first read that, I was kind of confused. Was she talking to David or a different king? Yeah, she was coached by Joab. Joab probably said, hey, this is what I want you to do. Ad lib as you see fit. Just convince David of this story. Here's the parable. Tell it to him. I just didn't know that David was the king she was actually talking to. Yeah, it would be curious, too. You know, the Joab is putting quite a bit of, he's putting quite a bit of expectation on the story that he's making up. 
that they are making up to tell David that he's pretty sure David's going to agree with that. Because, I mean, what if David would have said, no, you know the law. This is the punishment that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't care if you don't have a name to follow you. You shouldn't have broken the law. I don't know. Some think that maybe David is, is, is you know, this is a characteristic he is sharing with at the very beginning of the book in 1 Samuel with Eli, who wouldn't punish his sons. It wouldn't come down, but I don't know. That might be stretching it. Verse 18. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide anything from me. Do not hide from me anything I ask you. The woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of the, the angel of God, to know all things that are on earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel... There was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So... Whenever a story in the Bible starts out like that, what it usually happens? There's usually, what is it? What's behind it? Whenever it goes through the effort of saying he was good looking, does that story usually end well? No, it doesn't. Remember, this is what was with, who was it? Not Samuel, but the king, Saul. Remember, Saul was good looking. But um, we were also told David was reasonably good looking, you know, um, some of these instances in the scriptures, we hear about this. Uh, we hear about a person's uh, outward appearance. And generally, if it mentions something about them, it has to do with the story. Uh, they use their good looks to deceive. Or if you remember also, we had, um, remember we had the, the fat king, Eglon, who was, you know, when he was stabbed, it, it says, at the beginning of the story, it says he was so, so fat, so big. Because then later on in the story, that came into play because he was stabbed by the judge of Israel, and he got away with it because his fat covered up the dagger. <laughs> so the Bible will specifically mention physical characteristics if it has something to do with the story. What's the importance of the weight of his hair? Just that his hair was very thick? Well, now imagine... In, yeah. 200 shekels by the king's weight. What yeah. difference <laughs> does that make? Well, the fact that he made them weigh his hair each year after cutting it. What does that tell you the character of Absalom? 
egotistical. The king's son makes the whole village stop. He cuts his hair and declares to everyone, This year, hear ye, hear ye, this year the king's hair, the king's son's royal hair, weighed two and a half shekels. One shekel past what every normal man wears, and two shekels beyond anything a man of his honor or stature has ever had before. So, yes, this is pretty ridiculous, you know. Uh, and that's part of this idea where it mentions that he's good looking and, you know, he's a vain guy and vanity. And wouldn't you know, this is going to be part of, do you, do you know how Absalom dies? Do you remember? Yeah. So it makes sense, right? Some of these things kind of fall into place. And here we have a, a preview of this. So it's pretty funny that he weighed his hair each year and they recorded it. I mean, some kings record, you know, their victories in battle, and other kings record that they have censuses that they took, like Caesar Augustus. These were big things that they recorded. Absalom said, you're going to record how much my hair weighs each year. And wasn't this a sign also, perhaps, maybe that he could be a good sign for, for continuing the royalty? He's virile. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that he's, yeah, my hair grows, yeah. Sure. Well, you know, and that, that also, you know, draws to mind the story of the judges of Samson, right, and his hair and things like that. So, yeah, it was a big deal. When people get sick, what, what happens to them? Start to lose their hair. Uh, but not this, not this guy. Not this guy. This guy, he's got, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So then it talks about he had three sons. It doesn't name them, but it does name his daughter. So that's kind of curious. And she's named Tamar, right? After his, his sister, in honor of her. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. Verse 30. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So we're, getting, we're learning a little bit about the character of Absalom, aren't we? Yeah. And do you blame Joab for not being at Absalom's beck and call? Here, Joab brought him back. But why did he bring him back? Yeah, that's the question. That's the million-dollar question. We don't know. We're just, we're not sure. Um, whether he was sabotaging David's leadership or he really just felt bad for his king because he missed his son, right? And so, so Joab now, he's, maybe he's trying to avoid it, that he's, he's like, man, I don't want to deal with Absalom. I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with this. I got you back here, got you a house. You're back in Jerusalem. Just stay, just, just go off into Anonymous anonymity, but Absalom can't. He's got pride issues. He's got to be the forefront. 
And you can see that. The guy isn't going to come talk to him, so what does he do? He goes and sets his fields on fire. Uh, Joab, that would be his uncle. Cousin. That would have been his cousin. This was, this was David's nephew. Joab is David's nephew, so it's Absalom's cousin. He's in line for the throne, and he knows that. He's royalty. He's lived a privileged life. He's spoiled. And uh, Joab, you know, he's done everything for David that he's told to. He even, he even put Uriah on the front lines. He's been part of this as well. So I don't know. It's curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you going to ask something? Could he have brought him back so that he would have to face his fate to what he did? No, because the whole story that Joab told to get him back was based on the fact that he would not enforce the law, right? Does that make sense? The whole reason he convinced David to bring him back is so that he wouldn't enforce the law. Yeah. Okay, so now the king kisses Absalom. He, he lets him back. Chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses. Now this is curious. And I'm going to stop right here because I have a little bit of history with this. Horses and chariots. You know I used to race those, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, I have a little history with this. Um, a few years ago, I was asked to write um, a chapter in a book about weapons. And in the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites, he says, you are not to amass chariots and horses and weapons of war such as these and be like all the other nations. And so some people take that passage in the Old Testament and say, Christians should not own firearms, right? We should not use weapons that the rest of the world uses, that we Christians should be, should be happy with the weapons that God gives to us, meaning the word, right? So these are people who are kind of like strict pacifists. They say, look, this passage in the Old Testament clearly says we are not to use the weapons of the world. And so I was asked to write a chapter in a book on this, and this particular passage that God warns his, the Israelites not to have a lot of chariots and horses, that actually using those is going to be sinful. There are various times in the Old Testament when a king, like David or Absalom here, collects and hoards for himself chariots and horses, weapons of war, and we see it leads to something bad and even their downfall, or that it starts to show a change in attitude of trusting God to be your protector or trusting weapons of war to protect you. And so it's a common thought by some pacifists that this, this is a prohibition for Christians now to not own firearms. And I, I wrote against it saying, well, it's not just firearms. No matter what we have, even our fists and our hands and our feet, if we trust those to protect us instead of God, we're doing the same thing. I said, this is not a prohibition against certain weapons. In some regards, it was for Israel, but only because they were, they were trusting in something else than God. It's a thing of faith. And I used another example of the Old Testament when Philip is walking along and an Ethiopian eunuch comes and he has chariots and horses. And the Ethiopian eunuch asks and tells Philip to come into the chariot and horse with him. Philip didn't say, oh no, I'm an Israelite, I can't, use, I can't be on a chariot or with horses. And so Philip didn't tell the eunuch, as part of his conversion to Christianity, he had to give up his weapons of war. He, in fact, didn't say anything about that. 
Also, too, when soldiers are asking Peter what they should do in their vocations, Peter doesn't say you should quit the army or the military. Peter doesn't say, oh, they use weapons of war. You can't do that. But here in this instance, we now see Absalom gets himself chariots and horses. We start to see a characteristic of Absalom that God's word warns about that says if you start to amass weapons of war, chariots and horses in particular, that's not a good sign. What would y'all think if I had the trustees rebuild that back building on the hill because I'm storing automatic weapons up there? Would that throw up some red flags for you? No, because you know it's true. (laughs) No, because you know your pastor, right? Yeah, no. No, it should. It should. It should be like, or... Or let's say there's, there's some things happening, and instead of having a worship service, let's say a, a foreign army begins to invade our nation, and city after city from the west is starting to fall. Capital, this, this force is moving through the United States like a wave, and it's capturing cities and states, and nobody can stop them. And I start taking y'all and say, okay, let's go out back and let's practice shooting guns instead of having a worship service and calling out to God for protection first. And then maybe we go and shoot guns. <laughs> yeah, 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 Sunday, after Sunday school. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, uh, this episode's going to get flagged, I'm sure. That's kind of what we see here with Absalom, sort of starting to gather a, what might be considered a military force. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? His dad is... His dad is the king. What does the king's son need chariots and horses for? All he has to do is go ask his dad for it, and he'll give him whatever he wants. I mean, for heaven's sake, he brought him back from, you know, being uh, cast out. He's not going to punish him for murder. Well, what could the son ask for that David wouldn't give him? So, sorry about that. But you you, you can't, it's, it's kind of an interesting passage. And note to say that Absalom is starting now to amass what comes to be his own military. So what do you think that means Absalom's going to do? He's going to want to stage a, a coup, or as other people pronounce it, a coup. <laughs> a coup de tat. <laughs> a coup de tat. Okay, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, hey, what what city are you from? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So whenever someone's going to court, going to see the king, Absalom says, no, king can't help you. He's, He's lazy. He doesn't have any men designated for your town, your jurisdiction. Didn't appoint anyone. Oh, if I were king, I definitely would take care of you. And then this interesting passage here. Look at what it says. When they would, whenever, verse five, whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, He would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. What is Absalom doing there? Why is he doing? Yeah, what's he doing? 
whenever somebody would come to pay homage to Absalom, Absalom would grab them and kiss them. Brotherly love. Yeah, he's, okay, so these two things that are said, brotherly love and he's trying to win them over. Absalom is not acting as a king should, meaning if you approached the king, the king's soldiers would kill you where you stand. You did not approach the king, much less the king lower himself to kiss you. No king in his right mind would do that because of his office. Absalom is doing this thing, right? An adult, right? An adult comes to a child and says, hey, your mom and dad said you can't have candy. You know what I have at my house? I'll let you have all the candy you want, right? And a lot of times this also happens, and there may be a time and a place for this, right? But a lot of times, this happens with pastors too. A lot of times, pastors want to be what? Liked. Loved. They want to be accepted by people, and so they do things that are not appropriate for their office. And it's seen as a humble thing, right? And everybody likes a humble person, right, for the most part. Except we don't like ourselves when we have to be humble. But you see this happen in our society a lot right now. It's where people have a problem with authority. Not only do people have a problem with being under the authority of somebody else, but people don't like having authority. How does this happen? A lot of times, I see it with my kids in this way. Hey, a neighbor will come over, uh, an adult neighbor, and I'll say, hey, boys, say hi to Mr. Smith. And they'll say, oh, hi, Mr. Smith. And Mr. Smith will say what? Don't call me Mr. Smith. That's my father. Call me Bob. And I say to my boys, I say, no, you call him Mr. Smith, right? It's this whole movement, this idea that your parents are your friends. And all, all adults, right, call them by their first names. It doesn't matter. We're all the same, right? It's like, nope, nope. There is an order. There is authority given to various offices, parents, pastors, whatever it might be, right? And so you see this in politics also, right? Who we have, who do we have in office now? Good old Uncle Joe, right, right. Bill Clinton, you know, oh, I feel your pain, you know. You know, George Bush or who was it, Reagan or whoever it was, compassionate conservatives, right, you know, this whole ordeal. Like I said, there's a time and a place maybe for it, but, you know, Absalom here kind of shows a flaw in our human nature that doesn't like authority, doesn't like to have it, doesn't like to be under it. And so when people would come to properly pay homage to the king, Absalom is saying, hey, I'm your friend. No, come on, come here, come on, come on, come on. Right, let's let's greet each other as friends do. We're all friends here. Which, you know, in some instances that might be called for, might be proper, might be good and right. But Absalom is using it against his father, against the king, who is the proper authority. So this is something that we need to, you know, we need to remember. And, you know, the authority we have, it, it is oftentimes, you know, maybe that's the authority. That's the authority you get to have as a grandparent, right, with your kids, right? Right? And you, you say, hey, you don't have to call me, you know, you don't have to call me Mr. Smith, right? What do I call you, Grandpa? Oh, you can call me Grandpa. You can call me Gramps, right? Because there's a clear line of authority. It's clearly understood. And, uh, you know, your, your kids also, your kids, grandkids or whatever, they also need to be able to look at you with respect in your office of where you're at. 
But, you know, whatever. Um, now I'm that, you know, I saw that and thought, you know what, this is, this is kind of the way our society operates now. We don't like authority and we don't like to have authority. We want everybody to be our friend. Because then that means if you don't have authority, right, like Cain, God said, Cain, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Do I, I don't have authority, right? I don't need to keep track or help. And it's like, yeah, you do. If you don't have authority, you can say, not my monkeys, not my circus. And that's kind of nice. Not my problem. Um, but if it is your problem, then you're only contributing to it, right? As we've seen with Eli the priest, who wouldn't discipline his sons. And now, right, we may, it may be an indication David not disciplining Absalom. It's coming back around to bite him. I don't know. I, I, that's just kind of one of the interesting things of this. Like in today's world, okay, you may be our pastor and you may be our friend. Mm -hmm. But out of respect, we don't call you Ted. Right. We call you yeah. Pastor yeah. Out of respect for the office that you hold. A absolutely. And, and it's also one thing, too, you know, it's, that's something that people have to be taught also, right? Why do we have pastors? What is their role? And, and if we don't teach that, then maybe, you know, they, they learn that this person has some sort of authority. I should respect them or whatever. But if people call me by my first name, I don't, I don't call them out on it, you know. And especially people that I know who I know do treat me with respect, as according to the office. Um, because some people have been burned by people in places of authority, just like people who've had terrible fathers. You know, Father's Day is a real hard day for them. You know, when you tell somebody, God is like your earthly father, and they're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Unless you teach them the kindness and mercy of God and say, yeah, yeah, you know, we all have our shortfalls. We all have our sins. Our parents are sinners just like us. But this is, God is the ultimate, ultimate authority, and this is what he gives. And then he gives us strength and the gospel so that we can forgive people like our parents if they've sinned against us, because we certainly have sinned against them and others. But here we have Absalom, who is directly looking for ways and setting himself up to rebel against the right king of Israel. This is a big deal right here. So you can see how these last couple of chapters are really going to set up some serious problems within Israel. So Absalom, and look at that, look at that language. Absalom stole, verse 6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city Giloah. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. It's not looking good. There's a deception now, and he's even deceiving. What commandment is Absalom breaking here? He's, he's getting what does not belong to him by deception. Right. So we could say seventh. So he's stealing. So, yeah, that absolutely, that's one of them. 
Uh, he's also coveting, right? He coveted his father's, and, and he's trying. So he hasn't he hasn't stolen it yet, but he's taking parts of it. He's planning it, getting it by deception, right? Our neighbor's inheritance or belongings by deception, but help him keep them, right? He's not helping his father keep his kingdom. He's working against him. What else? What other? The eighth also because he's betraying his father. He lied to him, yeah, but he lied to him. In whose name? God's name. So also he's breaking the second commandment, right? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So he's lying to him concerning church. Take your pick. You really could have picked any commandment here and Absalom has broken it or is in the process of breaking it. So uh, well done. Yep, you got the right ones and uh, it's not looking good. So we can see how David's character and Absalom, how it's just further driving Israel into a, just a mixed up kingdom and a bad situation. Were you going to say something else, Sarah? Yeah, I was just going to say slow but sure. <laughs> slow but sure. Oh, slow but sure. Yeah, you got the right commandment. That was good. That was good. Yeah, and that's always fun. You know, when you when you're looking and there you go. When you're watching when you're watching the news and things like that, you ask yourself, well, what commandments at play here? Right? Or even yourself when you're dealing with, with other people um, and you're kind of wondering why, you know, what's going on? How do I address this? That's a good place to start. Well, what commandments am I dealing with and what commandments are they dealing with? So, All right, well, we'll pause there uh, until next week. Uh, any other any questions or, or review with this? This is a pretty good spot to, to pause, a good break. It's a good, good timing stop. All right, let's close. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have brought us into your family. And even though by each sin we threaten to build our own kingdoms and to put ourselves up in our own thrones and to try to attack your, your throne, we thank you, O Lord, that by your Son, Jesus Christ, and him giving his life, that him claiming victory over the effects of sin and death and the devil, that you have won for us every battle, that you have in uh, giving your son Jesus, given, given everything so that we may be part of your kingdom. We ask, O oh Lord, you'd continue to give us wisdom and bless us uh, so that we may, by your Holy Spirit, be given wisdom to walk in, in the way of truth and newness of life given in baptism, uh, whether it is in family affairs or, or the political world or even here at church. You would give us wisdom to live and to walk in harmony, standing for the truth, giving an answer for the hope that's within us, but in all these circumstances, doing it in love. Grant this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.